invite you to turn in your Bibles for the last time um, to the book of Esther. We're finishing up this beautiful, beautiful story in the Old Testament, celebrating, looking at God's sovereignty um, over all things for the good of His people and for His glory. And um, and the the book ends with a, a very high note. It's a it's a beautiful ending, but as we will see, it is an ending, but not necessarily a happily ever after ending. Um, and that's the idea. That's the title of the sermon: is already not yet. It's going to have a glimpse of an already salvation, already deliverance, and and a not yet reality. But before we we go on, let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior. Um, We ask for your grace. We ask for your help. Thank you for your precious word that you've given us. Lord, speak to us. Comfort our hearts. Draw us to Christ. And may your name be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've looked at the the main theme of the whole book is in verse 1. Esther 9 verse 1. Just look at that again. It says, Now the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's the main theme, uh, the theme of reversal. And they have won this battle, and it wasn't a hard battle, as verse 5 shows. Verse 5 says that... The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. But as we've seen, even though they've won the battle, even though the book ends with a feast, with Mordecai's honor and glory, it is not this happily ever after. It, As history tells us with the people of the Jews, and even as history tells us with us as the people of God as well. Therefore, this section will show us the already not yet principle. They've already won. And yet the book ends by showing us that not all their enemies are gone. God's deliverance has come and they are still waiting for God's deliverance to come. And that's true for you and me as well. Even as believers in under the new covenant, the main reversal of our lives has already occurred. The victory has been won. Christ has come. He has died for our sins. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended on high, seated at the right hand of the Father. And even though you and I still have to fight in this battle, and this by no means is an easy one, we know the outcome of our war. We have an unshakable hope. And yet, that final victory is still future. Our final salvation is still to come. The wrap-up of all of history, we are still waiting for. And for that, you and I need patience, endurance, And that's what we're going to see even here. So we pick up the story in verse 16. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. It says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. We are reminded once again that, remember, this was not the Jews enacting on vengeance. They were defending themselves. Of those who hated them. They, they were those who initiated this war and they defended themselves by killing those who wanted to kill them. But did you notice there at the end, there's another detail you shouldn't miss. And this is now the third time in this chapter where this is mentioned. Just, just glance back to verse 10 quickly. It says, um, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand 
on the plunder. Look at verse 15 at the end. They laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 16 at the end. Again, they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, as in all things, but especially in the Bible, when something is repeated, you should be paying attention. The author is trying to say something. Now, here we see their integrity. They refused to be blamed for greed or to say that they were made rich by plundering their enemies. The way the Jews acted here stands in stark contrast with King Saul. And remember what King Saul did with the Amalekites. God commanded him to go and kill everything, take nothing, not an ox, a sheep, camel or donkey. It was to be dedicated to the Lord to destruction. But instead, because Saul feared the people, he spared and they laid hands on the plunder. They kept the best. And get, get this. They took some of the best and they even sacrificed it to the Lord. It's like stealing a million rand and saying, at least I'm giving some of it to the church. It's like, no. Right? You can't correct an evil deed with a good deed. That's not how it works. Or as Samuel put it, remember what Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's what God wants. Obedience. We see another example in the Old Testament when a holy war was called for in the destruction of Jericho. The same thing happened. It was they were commanded to destroy everything, to take nothing. Instead, we see Achan coveted a cloak, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold. He took it and hid it under his tent. Because of that sin, they were unable to defeat the tiny eye. And after the truth came out, this is what happened to Achan. They took Achan... His whole family, all of his possessions, and they stoned them to death, burned them with fire, raised a great heap of stones on them. So the irony is that the shortcut to riches, the shortcut to get rich, your greed cost you everything. Achan lost everything, his family, his possessions, everything. Now with the Achan story, we can see what lies behind this coveting, this get rich quick idea. It's fundamentally a lack of trust in God. It is idolatry. It is worshipping of other gods. It is saying, I will take care of my own needs. God won't take care of me. I need to take care of myself. Now with that history in the background, we see the Jews in Esther refused to make the same mistake. They trusted their God. God gave us the victory We will not take the spoil. We will trust in God to provide for us in his way. We refuse to take shortcuts to get rich. Beloved, that principle is a principle for us today. It is never a mistake to do the right thing. That could be the principle of this. It's never a mistake To do the right thing. To take shortcuts because you don't believe that God will take care of you. Will make your life temporarily better, but it will have devastating long-term consequences. For example, if I can give some modern examples to try to drive this point home, it is always better to have the baby than to have the abortion. It's never a mistake to have the baby. No matter what people might think or how difficult your life will now become because of that. It is always better to lose your job than to compromise your faith. It is always better to be kicked out of the university than to deny what you believe about sexual ethics. It is always better to rather lose your possessions, your wife, 
your children than to deny Christ. It is never a mistake to do the right thing. The wisdom of a Christian is simple and it can be applied in every circumstance. Listen to Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. That's what we ought to do in every circumstance. Jesus' words encourages us, Matthew ten twenty eight. What does he say? He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Beloved, we need to count the cost of following Christ. You might lose everything to be a disciple of Jesus. But with Paul, when we lose everything, we can say to die is gain. He is more worth than all of our possessions. He is our greatest treasure, our greatest comfort. He's better than the greatest applause from men. And perhaps if that should happen to any of us, I do think that's one reason the church exists, is to be the safety net of believers who've lost everything. Right When family reject you, we should be the family. When you've lost your job, your house, your possessions, we should be your house. We should be your possessions. We as the church must be ready to, when our brothers and sisters suffer in that way, to be the safety net, to catch them, to clothe them, to feed them. In that is how we show that we are disciples. Remember what Jesus said. He says, if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. May God make us worthy to lose all for the sake of the gospel. And may we be ready to catch our brothers and sisters when they fall. Now, after the battle, Mordecai and Esther establishes the Feast of Purim. However, there was a small problem that had the potential to become a massive problem. The Jews celebrated the feast on different days. Look at verses 17 to 19. It says, This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Do you see the problem here? Which day is to be the day of the feast? The Jews in the rural towns hold the 14th day. The Jews in Susa, the 15th. Which one is it? Well, the answer is depends where you found yourself. But you say, but that isn't that such a little thing? Well, human nature shows us that it is a big thing, right? People argue over days. People want to say, but which day was it now? Was it now this day? Are we on the right Easter calendar? Are we on the right Christmas day or... Right? What everybody is arguing about these things, but at the end of the day, it's not about the day, okay? The calendar day. And while Mordecai had a very simple way to solve it, look at what Mordecai did in verse 20 to 21. Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month um, of Adar and also the 15th day of the month of the same, year by year. Simple. It's both. Okay, let's just, let's just have feast on both days. Okay, it's both. So, so, so no Jew could say like, but I'm in Susa. We were the, we were the real ones who got the real victory, right? Or no, we were in the rural towns. We got the real victory. No, it's, it's, we are in this together. It's 
our holiday. And beloved, again, like we can learn something from that. God is not impressed by your calendar being in order. He wants your heart to be in order, right? The warning of Matthew fifteen eight is always good to remember. Whenever, whatever we do, it says, this people honors me with their lips or their feasts or their holidays or their whatever, fill in the blank, but their heart is far from me. That's what God wants. Our hearts should belong to him when we have our weekly gatherings, when we have our feasts, when we have our holidays. And what this feast signified is this reversal. Look at verse 22 to 25. It says, As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts to the food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per, that is cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Do you see? That's the whole point of this Feast of Pyramids. The whole feast is, is a feast of reversal. How God turned their mourning to gladness. How God turned the evil plot of Haman on his own head. But did you notice what happened at the end of verse 22? It says, they send gifts of food, but also to the poor. Gifts to the poor. Don't miss that. Their joy in God's salvation was so overflowing that they shared it with those who don't have anything, who have little. Now, I'm still working out um, my slash our theology and understanding of how best to care for the poor. But don't miss the heart here. I think there's another principle here, right? We, when we have abundance, when we are glad, when we have a bonus at work or whatever, we should be thinking of the needy. We should not be thinking of myself and I alone. Even don't just think of poor as financially poor. Think of the poor as the needy who are lonely. Who are the lonely? Who are those who, who need support? Invite them in. Who has little in this world? Sponsor them at, at a feast with your family. Right? Who could you, who could you bless that, that's not going to repay you back? Those are the kind of people we need to be thinking of in our feasting, in our gladness, in our rejoicing. And again, um, if, if this feast showed this reversal, how much more do we in our feasting have reason to be glad? Is this not what God has done for us in Christ? Has he not reversed our fortunes as well? Listen to just some of these passages. Psalm 30 verse 5, it says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Christ's ministry was one of reversing our fallen state. Isaiah 61 verse 1 to 3, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, 
the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, the garment of praise, instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God has done for us. Instead of ashes, he's given us a beautiful headdress, our oil of gladness. Instead of mourning, our sins are forgiven, are washed away. We have an eternity to look forward to with God. This wonderful exchange has happened, this substitution with Christ and ourselves. And I want to read you this quote from John Stott. He said it so beautifully. He says, The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. And this is what makes our story, our salvation story, so striking. The one who hanged on a tree was not wicked Haman. It was righteous Jesus. The one who goes free is not Mordecai, but Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist. That is your story. That is our gospel story. And don't we too have a feast today? One we will celebrate shortly. The Lord's Supper. We remember his life, right? His death, his body given for us. We remember how we were slaves and how we were set free. But the feast of the Jews are ironic, and ours is ironic as well. Look at verse 26 again. It says, or 26, Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of all that face in this matter, and of what had happened to them. The, fest- the festival name is Purim, after the term Pur. Remember what had happened back at chapter 3, verse 7. Just glance back, just to remember 3, verse 7. Esther 3 verse 7 says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Asuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So, they casted the lot, the modern day dice, to determine on which day to kill the Jews. So Haman trusted in the God of luck. And now they call their feast the Feast of Purim. To celebrate that lucky throw of the lot have turned out to be their lucky day. In essence, you could call it, this is the luck feast. The feast of luck. But you see the irony of that. They're not saying it's the feast of luck because they're celebrating luck itself, as if that's a thing. They're celebrating the feast of luck or of lots because they remember God is the one who is over luck. Even randomness, something as random as the throw of a dice is in the hands of God, in the sovereignty of God who rules all things for the good of his people. Proverbs 16.33, just so that you can believe me. Okay, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Another verse we've been going to over and over again, Psalm 33 verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord Stands forever. The plans of his heart 
to all generations. So this feast is meant to ask who is really in control? Who determines our future? Is it the luck? Is it the dice? Is it the evil intentions of, of, of people? No. God reigns. His counsel stands forever. We can say with Paul that if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, of course, that doesn't mean that nothing bad happens or nothing evil will happen to us. The book of Job soundly refutes that idea. But rather, the feast is to celebrate that nothing can touch God's people except by God's will. In God's perfect love, wisdom, and sovereignty, whatever happens in our life is meant always for good, to make us more like Christ. That's the, that's the goal but what happens to you and me when we are in the trial? What happens? The next trial you face, right? You say amen. You interest. Monday morning, you forget. <laughs> okay? And you think it's not true anymore for yourself, for your life. And we become pagans. We become functional atheists. Because life just looks random. It's chaos. God is not really in control. That's what we think. And so what did the Jews do? Verse 28. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. That's what they did. This feast is mainly meant to remind them. Feasts are important because we get so stuck in our own world, in our own routines, that we do intentionally need to pause at certain times in the year, on a weekly basis when we come to church, whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's that pause, that feast, that reminder of our slow-to-learn brains, right? Or slow-to-learn hearts, whichever one of them comes first. To say, God really loves me. God really is in control. That's why the best reminder is this weekly reminder, the Lord's Day. He's a reminder that Jesus lives. He's raised from the dead. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. His resurrection. We celebrate that every Sunday. That's behind this Feast of Purim. To remember what God has done. And the irony of for our feast is, their irony was the, the Feast of Luck, right? To celebrate God's is over luck. But our feast is the Feast of the Cross, isn't that an irony as well? The instrument of death is our feast. But that doesn't make sense, right? But because that was a reversal, we rejoice that another died in our place, another body was sacrificed in our stead, the righteous for the unrighteous. And even though we celebrate the Lord's Supper because it is done, it is finished, the final chapter of world history is still to be written and this is exactly what we see in the book of Esther. Look at how the book ends in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1 to 3. King Asuerus <clears throat> imposed tax on the land, on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. It's a beautiful ending. It shows us the glory of Mordecai. There's peace. Mordecai the Jew is clothed in honor and glory and splendor. But what is the problem? 
Who is still in charge? In verse 3. Right? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. There's still an unbeliever on the throne. There's still a, a pagan king. Remember, it was under his kingship that the first edict even came to be in the first place. They are still not in the land of promise. They are outside. They're in enemy territory. And yet we see this already not yet. Already we see a glimpse of, right, he, he spoke welfare to the people. He spoke peace to all his people. That's, that's, that reminds us of Jesus, right? When he came, the law came through Moses. Grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. And yet when we look around us, we see death, we see chaos, we see suffering. The new heavens and the new earth is still to come. So whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is this already not yet tension. Yes, we are saved. Yes, we are delivered. And Jesus said in Mark fourteen twenty five, what? Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day, that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. One of my best friends lost their four-month-old baby this Friday. I know of believers who have lost their adult children. Others have to go through the pain of divorce and devastating, broken families. Others have to endure a lifelong battle of loneliness and to keep their hearts clean from bitterness. Beloved, whether it is cancer or criticism, whether it is the death of a child or the death of a parent, whatever suffering we go through, we, our hope is real. What is our hope when that four-month-old little body goes down into the ground? Our hope is that Christ will raise that body from the dead. That's the last enemy, right? 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. For we, Christ, he, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, beloved, that day will come. He's cl- it's closer today than yesterday when he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And then he will issue in this eternal kingdom. And so the message is clear. We have an already not yet reality in the coming of Christ. We have been saved. We will be saved. Do you know this, Jesus? Is that where your heart is? Does your heart belong to him? Do you know the peace that he gives when he speaks peace to us? That your sins are forgiven. Come to me, all who are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest now and one day rest forever. If not, the invitation, the call is for you to turn around from your sins, to repent and to put your trust in Jesus. Put, put it in him. And in the meantime, we can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, right? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come for us. You've come to save your people from their sins. Thank you that that's already a reality for us. That we are righteous in your eyes. We are justified by faith, through faith by grace as a gift. We can do nothing to earn it. We can receive it. And then we are so changed by your grace that we live it out in our lives. Oh Lord, thank you for the book of Esther that has wonderfully reminded us that you are on the throne. That when the world looks chaotic and random and the throwing of a dice plans evil for us, we know, Lord, that you are God. Even the casting of the lot is in your hands. The heart of the king is in your hands. You turn it wherever you will. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Oh Lord, may that be our comfort, our anchor in our suffering, in our trials. May we be your, your body, Lord Jesus, your church here on earth. May we love the poor, love the lost, and be holy as you are holy, Lord. Until you come again, may we be ready like the, the text we read in Matthew. May we be ready to see you, Lord Jesus, face to face. We thank you and pray this for your name's sake. Amen.